This is a Federal News Network podcast. A long-standing debate over whether prices on the GSA schedule contracts are fair and reasonable has reached a new level of discord. GSA's Inspector General makes what will to some be a shocking series of recommendations about schedule prices. GSA's Federal Acquisition Service responds with contempt for those suggestions. In his reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about the latest episode in this long-running squabble over schedule prices. And Jason, do tell, what the heck did the IG say about schedule prices that are so shocking? There's a couple things that the IG pointed out, and this is not the first time they've pointed this out. In fact, these recommendations all the way go back to 2016 when GSA set up something called the Transactional Data Reporting or TDR program. And the idea here is to get rid of the commercial price clause or the PRC, something that contractors hate and they find very burdensome. So GSA has been moving toward this TDR over the last six years. It's been a pilot, Tom, for six years. And basically what the IG said in its latest report is, based on our findings, based on our conversations with contracting officers, we cannot say that TDR or the CSP, Commercial Services Practices, which the price reduction clause falls under, are both deficient and do not give agency customers the idea that they are buying reasonable and fair prices. So what the IG said was GSA should immediately cancel the TDR program, again, a six-year pilot that GSA has been working forward and looking on, and they should also tell their customers that going forward, they should do their separate and independent price determinations because they cannot rely on multiple word schedule contract pricing because it's not considered fair and reasonable. Tom, these are two huge huge recommendations that I'll be honest, I'm not sure many in the community who follow this would say they would expected the IG to, to, to offer. Interesting. Will that take them back to the ancient days where you negotiated every price with a GSA contracting officer and the cumbersome kind of 70s and 80s approach? And I think that's part of the concern about these recommendations from the IG. You know, when I spoke to uh, experts in, 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 the, in the federal acquisition community and people who follow this closely, people like Alan Thomas, the former Federal Acquisition Service Commissioner in the early days of TDR, he said it upends the model that requires the IG to change how they kind of provide oversight. And the IG, you know, Tom, let's be honest, IGs tend not to want to change. And because this report looks at, okay, what would the new normal be? This is really requiring different buy-in from leadership in both FAS and the IG. Now, I also spoke with Alan Chavakin, former senior vice president over the Professional Services Council, has been in the acquisition world for 30, 40 years. And he says, listen, the IG has been a very vocal supporter of imposing and retaining the commercial sales practices and this idea of price reduction clause, which Tom dates back 30, 40 years now. And this is their idea. The IG wants to use this approach to recoup alleged overcharges or mischarges. And the fact is they did not like the, the IG did not like the TDR pilot from the beginning because of the way it changed how CSP and PRC works. Now this gets into the minutiae, but basically this idea of, are you getting the lowest price? And I think that's, that's been some of those concerns. And I think these folks believe that ending the TDR, going back to the price reduction clause would actually pull GSA and contractors back again, two, three decades. Yeah, it sure would. And GSA, I guess, did not respond kindly to these recommendations. They absolutely did not respond kindly to the recommendations. They disagreed with three of the four of them, basically saying, listen, we appreciate your help, but, right? They said in this in, in the uh, report, we believe we are actually compliant. We are actually getting better value from TDR. We're, we believe we're reducing burden on the, 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 the companies by using TDR. And we believe we're getting best value. And I think that's a really key 
key piece here, Tom, this idea of best value. What's also interesting is in the the response to the IG, the Federal Acquisition Service says they point to a Naval Postgraduate School report that compared Amazon Business with GSA Advantage and found that GSA Advantage had better prices than Amazon Business. And so this is even funny because, Tom, I'll just take you on an aside real quick. You know, GSA is pushing the commercial platforms, which Amazon Business is a big part of. And I've been saying it, as of others have been saying for the last few years, why not just make GSA Advantage better? Because it's obviously a better program than what you can find in the commercial world. So it's funny that GSA actually points this out to the IG, yet continues down the path of the commercial platforms. And finally, Tom, as far as telling customers to do their own price determinations, they also disagreed with that, saying uh, that is is wasteful and and seems to be adding more burden for something that has shown time and again, uh, proven time and again, that they are getting better prices. And finally, Tom, at the task order level, we know that GSA schedules are really just the, the ceiling and everything comes down from that ceiling. And I think that's something that uh, I'm not sure the IG recognizes or or at least understands as they write these reports and others. Any other industry reaction so far? I also heard from uh, Leo Alvarez, who's a principal in the government's contract solutions practice at Baker Tilly. And what they're basically saying is that this report and GSA's response is actually a, a really significant escalation of this battle that we've seen over the last five, six, seven years. The IG has seems to have lost some confidence in GSA schedules program to achieve reasonable prices and are basically putting out a proverbial buyer be- beware sign to the program, which is huge. Again, going back to what we talked about earlier, Alvarez also talks about that the IG, again, misses the point of best value. That's a bedrock principle, not only of the GSA schedules program, but of federal procurement for the last 20 years. And they, the IG still continues to want agencies, and, and in this case, GSA, to live in lowest price or, or, you know, Tom, what people hate to hear, lowest price, technically acceptable types of approach. Uh, Alvarez says the other piece that, that I think GSA has to be aware of is the burden that the price reduction clause does put on its its industry. And industry has been for a long time saying, we don't want to do this anymore. We need to move off of this. This is too much burden on us. And I think that that's where the IG struggles. And that price reduction clause was kind of a gotcha if the government was so inclined to go back and look. And a lot of companies got caught up in that and paid fines and so on. Because of- You're absolutely right. We've seen that time and again. And, we, and interestingly enough, we have not seen it recently in the last you know five, six, seven years. But in the early 2000s and in the early 2010s, we saw a lot of fines and whistleblower and KETAM cases of companies who ended up saying, oh, we didn't charge enough money. We charged the government too much money. Now we owe them money back and and had to pay those fines. And you also caught up with the Federal Acquisition Service Commissioner, Sonny Hashmi, about price reasonableness. What did he have to say? He did not want to respond directly to the IG report, which I understand. I mean, his response and GSA's response, you can find it in, in the IG report. So I asked him different questions about this challenge of price reasonableness. And he goes, listen, we've put a lot of effort into the TDR, to improving the TDR program. And really what this comes down to is the real-time data. Now, Hashmi says the price reduction clause just doesn't give GSA the data it needs to make those real-time decisions about prices. We have to rethink how we... How we buy products and services in government, and so programs like the TDR are the way forward. Uh, our current focus right now is to make sure that the quality and completeness of data continues to go up. We make significant progress this year. We want to continue to make that progress, and we're continuing to integrate that data into the analysis tools that our contracting officers use every day when we're doing fair price analysis. 
And so the value of TDR is already proven through category management. A lot of the data that we relied on to go through the pandemic, through hurricane response, all of the work that the government does, the value of data, TDR data is already proven over and over again. We want to make sure that that continues to be in the hands of the people who are making decisions every day. FAS Commissioner Sonny Hashmi, he says also that despite the IG's recommendations to close down TDR, GSA actually has plans to expand it. The timing and specific details are TBD. But we want to make sure that we are completely confident and in partnership with OIG, make sure that, that when we're ready to expand it, we will expand it. Well, Hashmi didn't say specifically how or when they would expand it. Tom, if you read the IG report, it does say that FAS currently has plans to expand TDR role to all scheduled contracts by November 1st, 2022, so less than a month. That would effectively exit the pilot phase that GSA has been in over the last six years. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporter's notebook. It's a federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. 
I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. 
And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right? To up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right? And diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. 
And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.